Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series, Progress and Joy, a study on Philippians. For more information about CBC or how you can get plugged in, visit our website, cbcsavannah.com. All right, so here's where we've been. All right, if you're new, you're visiting, you you can't remember last week, whatever. We've been in the Philippians. We are literally halfway through the book now. We just crossed over into chapter 3 as of this week. Uh, Let's just be reminded a little bit where we are at. The Apostle Paul is in Rome. He is under house arrest. And And while he's there, he writes a whole lot of letters. One of those letters is to a church he planted 10 years earlier, a group of people he loves, his first church plant in, on Europe, uh, the continent of Europe, the church in Philippi. And they had sent him a man with some provision to care for him while he was in prison. And so he is writing back to them to thank them, in essence, uh, but also to inform them of how he's doing. And really what he tells them is, look, I'm great. Whatever happens to me, if I live, all right, it's fruitful ministry. If I die, it's gain. All right, so I'm great. What I'm more concerned about is your progress and your joy. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. I want you to balance out those scales as we talked about. That's what I want to see from y'all. And, we, and we've looked at different things in relation to that. We've seen humility. We talked about not being grumblers and complainers. You got to see some great examples of last week of Epaphroditus and Timothy and how these guys are modeling these things. In chapter 3, there's a, it's almost like the book takes a little bit of a turn. Right, there's a little bit of a, a, a change. Every morning, I take the kids to school, and I get stuck at the same stinking light on Broad Street, Broad Street and Wheaton, right? And, and I get every morning, and there is this crossing guard. Some of you know the crossing guard that's at that. Right, okay. And, 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 and most of the time, she's a pleasant-looking you know, lady, except for a couple of times I've seen her like beat and hit some kids, but that's probably deserved, and she's, that's fine. I'm um, like, go get it, girl. I mean, but she'll just be sitting there smiling, and you know, just kind of you're, you're just waiting there. And then of all of a sudden, out of the blue, you will hear this ear-piercing, just break your eardrum whistle. I mean, it is the loudest whistle in the state of Georgia. And all of a sudden, this sweet lady who's just smiling, standing there, she, it's like she changes. She gets all intense and mean looking, and she walks out in the middle of the street, and she holds a stop sign. <laughs> she blows the whistle, walks these kids across the street, and then she gets back, and she's all happy again. All right? And as I think about the, this text here, I'm rem- that, that crossing guard comes to mind because what we've seen is Paul's been very fatherly. He's been very compassionate. He's been very caring. He's been very gentle. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, the whistle blows and he starts, he's super intense now, right? And the reason he is, is really the same reason that crossing guard gets super intense because his job is to protect and guard some people, just like that crossing guard. She's got eight kids. She's got to get across that street. The Apostle Paul is, is, is caring for and protecting and tending to these, these people he loves. And he is going to blow the whistle and warn them today of some things that if, if they're not aware of, they will steal their joy. They will hinder their progress in the faith. And the same thing he blows the whistle for on them 
It's the same stuff we're seeing today, right? And so we're just gonna look at what he's blowing the whistle on, what he's warning them of, and, and, and just kind of talk about it for a little bit today. So let me read our text Philippians chapter three, we're gonna look at all the way through verse 11 and we'll kind of come back and unpack it. And what we're gonna see is we're gonna see a reminder and we're gonna see a warning and then we're gonna see a perspective. So that's where we're going today, all right? Let me start with verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So he starts off and he says, finally, my brothers. And that's like a typical preacher, finally, because he's got two chapters left. He's got, I got one more point and 17 sub points, right? But actually, the reality is it's just showing a change Right? He's kind of showing a change in, in, the, in the idea of what's going on here. He's blowing the whistle, and he says this. Uh, it, Rejoice in the Lord. To write you the same things is no trouble to me and safe for you. He says, look, I got nothing but time here. Repeating myself, not a problem. I ain't going nowhere. All right? So for me to remind you of these things, it's good. Right? Do you ever think about how often the Bible repeats itself? There ain't a lot of new stuff. It's about the same seven things over and over and over. How many times does Jesus teach the same thing over and over and over? Peter says, as long as I'm here, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. Paul repeats himself in almost every book. Why? You know why? Because we're dumb. I know you're like, no, I'm not dumb. We're dumb. God has to constantly repeat himself over and over and over. Just like a mom with her kids. Take off your shoes. Take off your shoes. Take off your shoes, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your, how many times, right? Every time Thompson, this is Jay Thompson, your pastor of family, gets in my car, he is like, hates seatbelts, I think, okay? So he gets in my car and I have one of those cars that if you sit in the seat and you weigh more than 20 pounds, it beeps constantly and he ignores it. I'll be like, Thompson, put on your daggum seatbelt. He's like, what, man, what? I'm like, that's a, that's a reminder. Put on your seatbelt. It's not just my car beeping. My car doesn't just beep. It's reminding you, put on your daggum seatbelt. That's Paul saying, look, we have hard heads. And so I am going to remind you of this. This is nothing new. I'm going to remind you. But it's also a safeguard for you. It's, it's safe. This is the whistle. 
This is going to protect you. All right? Let me warn you. And so here's the reminder, the first thing this morning. Your reminder is rejoice in the Lord. Right? Some of you guys, when you went to Christian school, you know that song. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You could do it in a round. Come on, you guys start. You guys finish, right? But right, he said, this is not new. How many times has he said this already? Oh, by the way, in chapter four, he's going to say it again. Rejoice. And I just want to camp here for a minute. I want to unpack this because we hear that and we, yeah, that's good. Good. Right. This is not a statement. This is actually not a suggestion. Paul is not saying, man, don't we have a lot to rejoice about? Isn't life great? That's not what's going on here. He is giving a command. It is in the imperative mood in the Greek text. He is commanding you to rejoice. He's not suggesting it. Now, how different the perspective of the world about Christianity. What, is, what does the world think about Christianity? We're about rules. We're about intolerance, right? That's what, we're about self-righteousness. That's a shame. What the world should see about the church is a group of people that know how to rejoice. He is commanding your joy. And again, I think some of us, because we're grumpy, and let's be honest, you are, you, have, you don't like this. Now, if you say, be holy, for you are holy, yeah, that's a real Christian command. Flee immorality, yeah. But when you're commanded to rejoice, you're like, that's, that's a lesser Christian character. It's just the, it's the same deal. It's just as important as be holy for I am holy. It is just as important as flee immorality, as love your neighbor. It is the same deal. It is something he commands, that God commands your joy. Because God cares about your joy. God actually cares about your happiness. And here's what we've done at the church, and I'm learning this now, and I've done this. We have actually... Some, for some reason, we have dichotomized joy and happiness as if happiness is bad and sinful, but joy is good. And I've been guilty. I've done it in this church. And I'm telling you right now, I've been wrong. I'm learning. I've been reading this book. This is a book some of you guys need to go out and get. It's called Happiness by Randy Alcorn. It's a brand new book. It's like 537 pages. It is a theology of joy and happiness in the scripture. And what I am seeing is that, that this separation of joy and happiness is not, some, it's a man-made deal. That, that it's not a biblical thing. That God has designed us to actually pursue happiness and to be joyful. And if you don't believe me, go back to Eden. Eden was a great, joyful, happy place. Right? Every sunset was a delight. Every, every flower smelled sweet. Every swim was refreshing. Every night's sleep was restful. Every bite of, of an apple or a fruit was a delight. It was better than it looks, unlike here. Here, it's, the anticipation is almost better. I go back to Philly. I, I can't sleep for six months because I'm thinking of cheesesteaks. And when I finally get there, I eat it. I'm like, yeah, that was good. But the anticipation was better than the actual food. And eating, the, the anticipation wasn't as good as the, the delight of eating. It was a joyful, happy place. And ultimately, even more so because you get to be in intimacy with, with God for every day. Perfect intimacy. That was the design. And if you think, well, that was eating. What is God going to do? 
How much is he for your joy and contentment and happiness in him? He is actually, he actually sends his son to be murdered and tortured for you. He will actually raise you again and he will recreate the universe again so that you can be with him in perfect joy again. Because God is for, he is for our joy. He's for our joy, right? It's, it's a command, right? And, and it's not the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of joy that is wrong. In fact, philosophers and theologians have been talking about this for the last 2,000 years. Thomas Aquinas is, says this, let me quote him. Man is unable not to wish to be happy. There's something in us that people pursue happiness. The problem of pursuing joy and happiness is not the problem. It's the, pro- the problem is where we pursue it. That is the problem, which is why he blows the whistle, which is why you need the reminder, rejoice what? In the Lord. There's a, there's a little prepositional phrase there, in the Lord. This is not some generic rejoice. It's rejoice in the Lord. That's the reminder, because we try to pull joy out of all the wrong places. And, you, and I don't, you don't need me to tell you where. You try to pull out of job and money and sex and, and food and fame and ambition and sport. And it's not that those things are bad. They're actually good, right? But, but you can never, those will never satisfy. Those will never bring the satisfaction and the contentment, and the ultimate joy that the Lord will. Why? Because he is the constant. They are not. He's the one thing that does not change. If you're, if you're trying to find joy in getting thinner and being faster and having abs, right? If that's, your, if that's where you're going to get your joy, look, you can, mirror, mirror on the wall. Someone is eventually going to be fairer than you because you're going to get old. It's the way it's going to happen, right? If it's, if it's being in more control or being higher up on the ladder, someone is going to take your place one day and they're going to give you a watch and say, have a nice life. All the stuff you're going after, someone else is going to be driving it. Someone else is going to be living in it. Right? If it's sports, look, even if your team, if, if, if the, by some miracle the Cubs win the World Series, all right, because that would be a miracle. If some miracle they win, what's going to happen in March? You know what happens in March? Pitchers and catchers. They start again. Well, if your team wins the Super Bowl in February, what do they do in April and May? They do the draft. It's just like it starts all over again. You get your ring and they start. It, it never satisfies. It's never constant. Right? Only Christ is the constant, so only he can bring the ultimate satisfaction. So pursue that. Rejoice in that. There's this, and there's this, there's this old hymn some of us love. We've sang it here. It's a little bit deceiving. It's called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You know this one? Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, look full in his front of her face. It's a cute little song, but it's deceiving. It's actually not great theologically because it assumes that the things of the earth are wicked, doesn't it? If you just look at Jesus, all the sinful stuff in the world will go away. Is marriage sinful? Is food sinful? Actually, if you look full in his wonderful face, it actually makes the things of the earth better. The relationships can be deeper. That stake, I can appreciate that stake more when I'm rejoicing in the Lord. The sunset can be better because I know he's the one who's created it. It's not that we just look at Jesus and everything else is junk. It's he makes things better, 
right? We can enjoy them because we enjoy him ultimately. I know this is a radical way of thinking for the church, but that's because most of the church is grumpy. They're not joyful. They're not rejoicing in the Lord, right? They're duty-based. God, I want you to grasp this, y'all, because it will change our perspective. God is commanding your delight. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if my wife tomorrow says, I want you to sit on the couch, eat a tombstone pizza, and watch Monday Night Football, that is my delight. (laughs) That's not a hard command. That's what God's commanding. He is commanding your delight in him. It's huge. And I think the church needs to change change its view because what we've done is we bought the lie since Genesis 3 that God is against you, that God is not good, that he is not for you, that he is holding you back. It, it's, he's, what did Satan do right in the beginning? He sowed, sowed seeds of discontent because discontent is the road to disobedience. Right from the beginning, right? And so we've we got to start reshaping and looking biblically and, and, and shaping our worldview. And that doesn't mean, just because he's saying rejoice, by the way, does not mean everything is going to be happy all the time. There's still going to be cancer. There's going to be struggles. It is going to be hard. He is in prison. Okay? So this is not, he's not sitting at six flags while he's writing this. But that doesn't mean we cannot rejoice. Celebration and gladness have been marks of the church from the very beginning, even in the midst of suffering, eating and drinking and singing and dancing and making music. It's all been always part of the church's, what they've done. It is not wrong for the 49ers to get together and party. They don't have to do Bible study. They're not propagating, propagating Satan's plan because they don't study Revelation when they get together. They can have fun, right? Because God is, is for us rejoicing in himself. It's not a sin to smile and laugh for you to come to church and actually be happy, to read the scripture with a smile on your face, to sing with joy and to pray. I mean, shouldn't that be the way it is? It's not us who know God that should be miserable. It's those who don't know God, right? Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? And so this is a reminder. Just a reminder. It's a whistle. Rejoice in the Lord. All right? Just a reminder. Now he really starts blowing this whistle loud. This is where he really gets into it in verse 2. And this is your warning. All right, this is where he starts to warn. Verse two, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All right, what's he talking about here? Look out for the dog. He says, look out three times. Look out, look out, look out. Dogs is not what we think about when we think about dogs. This is not all sweet little snookums, the lapperdoodle, and ooh, he's so cute. This is not that, right? This is the word for wild dogs that are running free and that are eating dead bodies and are going to the bathroom everywhere they want and they're ravenous and scary and biting people and flea infested, nasty, gnarly dogs. That's this word. And he says, watch out for them. And it's not that Paul's playing animal control. He's using the word uh, dogs as a metaphor for these people who he calls evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about? A group of people called the Judaizers. All right? We've seen them before. You see, if you read through the, Paul's epistles, he's there in almost every book. We saw them in Acts 
chapter 15. It's people in that day that would say, yeah, believing in Jesus, that's good. It's important. But you need to get circumcised if you're going to be a really good Christian. Right? Believe is fine, but, but really you, you got to do more. If you really want to be holy, you got to do more. And we don't have real big issues and debates in the, this church anyway about circumcision. But here's the warning. The warning is against legalism. Now, we throw that word out a lot in church, and I don't think we really know what it means sometimes. Right? It's kind of that Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I don't think you know what it means. Whatever. I, can't, I haven't watched it in a while. But point being, right? I don't think we know what it means. All right? The heart of legalism, in essence, is if I do this, God likes me more. That's legalism. Okay? Legalism is not having standards. Legalism is not, I'm not going to have my girlfriend in my apartment at 1130 on the couch at night with no one around. That's not legalism. That's called wisdom. All right? Uh, legalism is not, I'm not going to go out at 2 in the morning because nothing good happens at 2 in the morning unless you're delivering babies. All right? That's not legalism. It's called standard. God is not against you pursuing holiness in these things. What legalism is, is if I do this, God likes me and people will think I am spiritual. That's legalism. Right? And that's what these people are doing. Right? you got to believe and do, and that'll make you holy. It's the person that says, I'm going to get a Bible, and I'm going to underline it and highlight it really brightly, and I'm going to throw it out there at the service so everyone thinks how great I am because they can see how much I've underlined my Bible, and they'll think I'm super spiritual and holy. That's legalism. Right? It's the person that says, well, they have cable, and I don't. They do this type of school, and we don't, and so we are more holy. And when our group gets together, we do Bible study, and they just have barbecue and sweet tea. We are better than them. That's legalism, right? That I'm not as bad as them. In our church, we do 45-minute sermons, and they do 12-minute sermons. Their sermonettes are for Christianettes, and so we're a better church. It's legalism. It's works-based righteousness. God likes you because you do or don't do fill in the blank, right? And, and ultimately, the problem is, even though we wouldn't say it, is that what, the problem of legalism is says, what Christ did was good, but it wasn't enough. So we can't sing Jesus paid it all anymore. It's Jesus paid most of it, but I got to do the rest, that I can actually earn God's favor by doing my quiet time, by giving my money, by coming to church, by being better than those people because we're the good people and they're the bad people. And Paul is blowing the whistle. He's blowing the snot out of it. All right? That's the first time I've ever used snot in a sermon in eight years right there. But that's what he's doing. Right? He's saying, don't be a dog. Don't be a nangy Flea-infested, nasty dog. That's what it is. They're evildoers. Evildoers. That's a strong word. And, 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 and if you're that, what is that going to do for your rejoicing in the Lord? Have you ever met a happy legalist, really? I mean, really. Have you ever met a happy, joyful, religious person? No, they're miserable. And they're usually mad that you have the freedom to go have a barbecue and, have, and watch all the Star Wars in one sitting. 
because they don't have the freedom to do that and they'll just accuse you. You're just a pantheist and you're, yeah, right? Because you're doing what they don't feel free to do and they feel they're mad about it, right? That's what man-made religion does. It, it makes people mad and frustrated. But Christianity is not man-made. Christianity is about Christ. It is not about what we have done. It is about bragging what he has done. Religion says God loves the good people and God hates the bad people. So you better be the good people. Christianity says everyone is the bad people and Jesus loved us anyway and died for us. That's what Christianity says. Religious says you need to do, 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 and then because you've done, 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 God will give you heaven as a reward. Christianity says you can't do anything to earn God's favor and so he has lavished you with it in his son. Right? Religious people don't repent. They're not humble. They're angry. They're critical. They're self-absorbed. They can't laugh. They can't have fun. They're just nasty, mangy mutts. They stink. Right? Christians are humble and gentle and, and repent from sin and they own their brokenness. And if you're here this morning and you're looking around and you're thinking, yeah, I'm a little better than that person. I know. I saw where they were. Or, oh, yeah, we're a little bit better than that church because of this. If, if you're thinking you're better than other people or you're comparing or you're always critical, you probably are a dog. And you need to, you need to know that you're a dog. All right? And I love dogs. All right? I love y'all. But not the friendly labradoodle kind, the nasty kind. So you need to turn from that. You know, stop trusting in your own righteousness. Trust in the righteousness of Christ. And if you're here, and, and then the other side of this, the flip side is when you're here and you walk, I'm just not worthy and I didn't do a quiet time all week and I can't find my Bible and you're just, oh, I'm never going to be as good as them. You may sound, that may sound great, but that's just the flip side of being a dog. You're still assuming that you can earn God's favor and that somehow if you did seven days of quiet times that you would be worthy to come worship Jesus, really? Just because you were good this week? You're any more worthy? No. Right, what we do, we rest in the finished work of Christ. That's what we do, right? You don't need to feel all this, oh, I'm not worthy. Look, did Jesus say, I came to proclaim the good news to who? To the poor. I came to, to free the captives, to give them liberty. To those who were oppressed, to free. It's not those who, who don't need a physician that I came for, it's those who do, those who are sick. I came for the sinner, so you turn from your sin and you trust in him. That's Christianity. That's who we are. Don't be a dog, right? And look what he says next, verse three. He says, this is what we are. For we are the circumcision. And it's emphatic in the original. It's like we, it's in bright lights. We are the circumcision. What is he talking about? Remember what circumcision was in the Old Testament. It was an outward sign that the people of Israel were believing in God's covenant. It was never meant to make them righteous or earn, their fa earn God's favor. It was an outward symbol that they were set apart and that they were believing in God's promises. So why is he saying we don't need circumcision, but we're saying we are the circumcision? He's not talking physical, he's talking spiritual. That our hearts, in essence, have been circumcised. That there's a cutting away of the old and now there is a new that we have believed. We don't need the physical symbols anymore. We don't need external. We don't need a temple. We have the temple. 
We don't need sacrifices. We have the one sacrifice, Christ. We don't need a high priest. We have Christ. We have Christ now. We don't need all these external symbols. But what we are is we're the spiritual circumcision. We're the ones who worship what by the Spirit of God. Right? There's an allusion there to John chapter 4 when Jesus says that we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And don't think that worship is just singing. This word for worship is actually service. It's one who places himself under the authority of another. That we have placed ourselves under the authority of God by his son and through his spirit. That we by his spirit now we serve. So when you love, you're you're loving by the spirit. When you go, you're going by the spirit. When you ask for forgiveness, you're doing it by the spirit. That's what we do. And we don't put any confidence in that. We put our confidence in Christ. It's not what we have done. It's what he has done. Right, so that, that's, what, that's the difference. And then he goes on a rampage here, and I love it. He says, no, if anyone should be able to put confidence in the flesh, it was me. He says, no, I don't. I have the, many of you have this thing called LinkedIn, right? I don't even know how I got on the daggum thing, but I keep getting emails from people, connect on LinkedIn. I'm like, fine. Somebody so endorsed you for this skill. I'm like, somebody endorsed me for church events. I've never done a church event in my life. I don't even know what that means. But anyway, fine, endorse me, whatever. But this, in essence, in chapter four, in verses four through six, Paul is going to, in essence, list his LinkedIn out there. All his endorsements, all the things he's done. He's going to just say, here's what I've done. And if anyone has a reason to be confident in the flesh, it's me. But I'm not, so you shouldn't be. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's one of the big tribes. First king of Israel from Benjamin. They were warriors. They were studs. He said, I'm, a, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I got the pedigree. Right? I was a Pharisee. I memorized the Bible. I knew more Bible than most people. I knew more Bible than Moses. Memorized it all. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I was Killing Christians. I killed Stephen. I killed all these other people. That's who I was, right? As to the righteousness under the law, blameless. I was tithing my spices. I didn't walk too far on the Sabbath. I didn't miss a beat. I have the resume, right? No one was better than me, right? I was blameless. But verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. All that is done. Done. Over. It's loss for the sake of Christ. And and here's where he moves into his perspective. He's given us a reminder. He's given us a warning. And now he's going to give his perspective. Why is it loss? Verse 8. Indeed, or you could translate it more than that. I count everything, and you could circle that or underline it. Not, I count everything as loss. Not just my religion, not just all this other junk, but every pursuit of mine is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish. He says, Christ is so wonderful. I have lost everything. Everything and everything is just rubbish. Here's the problem. No one uses the word rubbish. Do you? Unless you're British. 
rubbish bins over there. You know, I mean, it's Monty Python or something, right? It, it's not a great translation, right? But that's because this word in the Greek is so shocking and it's so strong that the ESV and all these other translations, they don't, they don't like to, to translate it accurately. Because when the original Philippians would have heard the word skubala that he used, they would have been like, oh, said that. They would have covered the kid's ears because it was a slang term in its day. And here's what it means. Let me give you an example. Um, so I, I take Milton to the dog park in, in our neighborhood and he runs around and some, you know, I don't know if this is a modern deal or not. We didn't do this when I was growing up, but there's a sign, clean up after your dog. Like in the eighties, we didn't clean up after our dogs. Our dog just went and that was the way it worked. I don't know when that started, but it's nasty. And so here's Milton and we say, go do your business. He goes, does business. So what I have to do after he does his business is I have to go over and get this bag and pick up his business right? And put it in a bag and then throw it away. And I can't do it without gagging every time. I'm like, Bleh. it's disgusting, right? That's the word that he's using here. It's a slang word for doo-doo. That's the word, all right? And it's, he's, picture, he says, all my righteousness, all my pursuits Everything I was about, it's a big old pile of dog doo-doo. Nasty, stinking doo-doo. It's shocking, right? It's all, everything. You're going to go take that little bag and put it on your shelf? Look at this beautiful, and it smells so good. No, and that's the point. He says it's nasty. Everything compared to Christ is Doo-doo. I don't want nothing to do with it. I want Christ. Right? And he says, I, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And this goes back to what we said. Don't try to improve on Christ's righteousness. You cannot live in light of his righteousness. Don't try to improve on it. Right? But make this your aim. He says, I want to know him. That's the aim. That's the value. I want to know Christ. That, that, if you, that's the pursuit that he says go after. So many people come to church, and, and, I, and I, don't know, I don't know why you're here specifically, but people come to church for all the wrong reason. They don't come to know Christ. They come usually or often to get something or to feel better. Well, I go to church, I'll feel better about myself. Or I'll follow Jesus as long as he makes my life kind of this, and he'll find me a spouse one day and, and keeps me from all the bad stuff. That's how dogs think, right? That, that's, that's how the dogs think. It's not I follow Jesus if he does this. It's I follow Jesus even if whatever happens, because he is so great. And that is the perspective he's trying to get across here. The perspective is this, that Jesus is better than everything. Everything else is a big old pile of Milton's dog do. That's what he's saying. Jesus is so much better and so he says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection. And we like that part. I wish he would have hit a period then. But he says this, and may share in his sufferings. 
I don't know about you. I don't want to share in Christ's sufferings. Do you? I mean, do you really? Is this your prayer? Lord, I pray I'll suffer just like Jesus suffered. That's not my prayer. But he says, I want to even fellowship, I want to koinonia in his suffering. Why? Because if knowing Christ is so great, if, if it's so great, if, if walking through suffering brings me closer to him, then bring it on. That's what I want. It, it's, a, it's a perspective we can't fathom. right? But most, many of you know this. It's a hard truth, but when you are struggling and when you are suffering, there is a way and an intimacy with Christ that's, that's there that's not there in other times. And you see this in the scripture. You see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and who's there with them right there? The Son of God. You see Stephen being stoned in the early church, and who's right there with him? He's looking up into heaven. He sees Christ standing there. Paul, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, when he says, everyone has abandoned me. They've all left except Jesus. He strengthened me. And it's not that Paul is just sadistic and bring on, I just love suffering. But what he's saying is, I will, I will take suffering if it brings me closer to Jesus because Jesus is so much better than everything else. Everything else is doo-doo. Intimacy is so much better. And this is the perspective that's constantly seen in Scripture. And we got to come back to it. Just got to keep coming back to it, right? I mean, do you think, I mean, do you really think guy who's got his secret little life on the computer, do you think that's going to bring you satisfaction? Really? You think that little flirty flirty with that person at the office when you're kind of playing with that little affair online, do you think that's going to bring you joy? I can tell you it's not. Teenage girl, do you think that guy who's just using you, that that relationship, you got to just kind of jump through these hoops because he expects this? Do you think that's going to bring you joy in the end? I can tell you it ain't. Right? Think if you just get a few more thousand in the bank, that's going to make all the difference in the world. You're going to be so happy. Do you climb the ladder? You get out of the house and finally get away from your parents and get to live your life. Do you think that's really going to make you happy? I'm telling you, it's not. Right? It's not. You're not going to find contentment. You're not going to find the joy because Christ is that much better. And that kind of nominal Christianity, that Christianity 75 minutes a week, I'm telling you, when the, tr when the trials of life do come, you are going to crumble if that's your, if that's, if that, because, because 75 minutes cannot match the difficult hours of the tough stuff. If you're just kind of, I'm a church guy and then I'm kind of nothing. And you're, I can tell you when, when, when everything falls too, is that your little rules and your kind of things that you, your little hoops that you got to jump through, they ain't going to do no good either. Because you're just going to get mad at God because I've been jumping through my hoops and then God let this happen. And I can't believe God would ever let this happen because I've done my part. He and his done. Right? There's got to be something bigger. There's got to be something more valuable. The perspective that Christ is better. And that really is the key to this whole deal because if you realize Jesus is better, what's that going to do for rejoicing? And what's that going to do for self-righteousness? Nothing. So the key to the rejoicing is to see the value of Christ.
to pursue knowing him, to see it. And this is exactly what Jesus taught. Let me, let me close with just, let me, let me close with a parable Jesus told. I'm going to retell it because it was, I'm going I'm to modernize it a little bit because it's the same principle. Imagine there's a girl named Joan. I always use Joni. So Joni. Joni's a middle school art teacher. Got her master's in art history from the state college. And, and it's the summer. So Joni's off enjoying her summer and just kind of doing a little tour of southern France. And she comes to a little village. And this village, all the, all the local people have donated all the little artwork that they have at their house. And they're kind of trying to raise money to build a new school new hospital or something. And there's one painting at this little sale that stands out to Joni. It's supposed to be a copy of a Picasso. It's deemed non-original because uh, Picasso's sign is art in a certain way and this one just has some initials in the bottom corner. But, he, but Joni did her master's thesis on Picasso and realized that early in his life, he didn't sign his work, he actually did initial it. And after looking and studying this Picasso, Joni comes to the conclusion that she is in the, she's in the presence of a priceless work of art worth $100 million, maybe two or three of them in the world. And they're asking 20,000 euros for this thing. Well, 20,000 euros is two-thirds of Joni's salary, right? And she's got college debt, and she's got about $573 in her checking account, Right? She's barely getting by as it is. So if she was going to buy this painting, she'd have to sell her Honda Civic and empty the $500 out of the checking and call her dad and say, Dad, I need to borrow $15,000. Would, would you lend me $15,000? What should Joni do? What would you tell her to do? What's her dad going to say when she calls and says, Dad, can I borrow fifteen dollars Are you crazy? Seems like a huge risk, isn't it? But is it really a risk? I mean, is it really? Because if it's a Picasso, it's worth $100 million. What's $537 out of your checking account? Right? What, is it crazy or is it the wisest thing she could ever do? That's the question. And so here's, what, here's how Jesus says it. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his what? Joy. He goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Is that a risky proposition? Selling all that he has? Not really, because he's found the treasure. And so this is what Christ is saying. This is the value of Christ. It is worth risking everything for. So that's the question for us. Are you willing to risk? We're, we're going to worship. And here's what I just, I just want you to ask. What have you been pursuing, really? What is, what is the pursuit of your life? And is it treasure or is it doo-doo? I mean, really. Where do you spend your time and if you, really, if you really treasured Christ like this, what would be different? How, would your time, the way you spend your time, would it be different? Would you maybe wake up 20 minutes early and 
spend some time with Christ? How would you spend your money differently? How would you treat your kids' athletics that aren't the Super Bowl different? What, what would be different if we truly treasured and valued Christ, right? That, that's what I want you to think about. And we've picked some songs that I think reemphasize these truths, but just spend some time thinking and worshiping and ultimately then let's practice that first part. Let's rejoice. Why? Because we have found the treasure in the field and it's worth it. Let me pray. I'll ask the team, you guys can come on up and then we'll worship. Father, thank you for helping uh, me just to get through this, this text. And, and, and I pray just the words of rejoice and the warning of legalism and, and even the perspective of the value of Christ would just be in our hearts. I pray there's men and women in this room and there's teenagers that are pursuing things that will bring destruction. There's people who are trusting in their goodness, or what they think is their goodness. I just pray just for a different perspective. I pray that as we worship, as we sing, as we rejoice, there will be something different about ours than so many. There will be a true resting and a true joy and a true satisfaction in Christ and what he's done. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can stand as we worship.